0: 4. Social and moral qualities. 4. Ladylike etiquette. No woman can afford to treat men rudely. A lady must have a high intellectual and moral ideal and hold herself above reproach. She must remember that the art of pleasing and entertaining gentlemen is infinitely more ornamental than laces, ribbons or diamonds. Dress and glipper may please man, but it will never benefit him. 5. Cultivate deficiencies. Men and women poorly sex treat each other with more or less indifference. Whereas a hardy sexuality inspires both to a right estimation of the faculties and qualities of each other, those who are deficient should seek society and overcome their deficiencies. While some naturally inherit faculties as entertainers others are compelled to acquire them by cultivation. 6. Ladies' Society. He who seeks ladies' society should seek an education and should have a pure heart and a pure mind. Read good. Pure and wholesome literature and study human nature, and you will always be a favorite in the society circle. 7. Woman haters. Some men with little refinement and strong sensual feelings virtually insult and thereby disgust and repel every female they meet. They look upon women with an inherent vulgarity, and doubt the virtue and integrity of all alike. But it is because they are generally insincere and impure themselves, and with such a nature, culture and refinement are out of the question. There must be a revolution. 8. Men-Haters. Women who look upon all men as odious, corrupt or hateful, are no doubt so themselves. Though they may be clad in silk and sparkle with diamonds and be as pretty as a lily, but their hypocrisy will out, and they can never win the heart of a faithful, conscientious and well-balanced man. A good woman has broad ideas and great sympathy. She respects all men until they are proven and worthy. 9. Fond of Children. The man who is naturally fond of children will make a good husband and a good father. So it behooves the young man, to notice children and cultivate the art of pleasing them. It will be a source of interest, education and permanent benefit to all. 10. Excessive Luxury. Although the association with ladies is an expensive luxury, yet it is not an expensive education. It elevates, refines, sanctifies and purifies, and improves the whole man. A young man who has a pure and genuine respect for ladies, will not only make a good husband, but a good citizen as well. 11. Masculine Attention. No woman is entitled to any more attention than her loveliness and ladylike conduct will command. Those who are most pleasing will receive the most attention, and those who desire more should aspire to acquire more by cultivating those graces and virtues which a noble woman, but no lady should lower or distort her own true ideal. Or smother and crucify her conscience. In order to please any living man, a good man will admire a good woman, and deceptions cannot long be concealed. Her show of dry goods or glipper of jewels cannot long cover up her imperfections or deceptions. 12. Purity. Purity of purpose will solve all social problems. Let all stand on this exalted sexual platform, and teach every man just how to treat the female sex, and every woman how to behave towards the masculine and it will incomparably adorn the manners of both. Make both happy in each other, and mutually develop each other's sexuality and humanity. Practical Rules on Table Manners 1. Help ladies with a due appreciation, do not overload the plate of any person you serve. Never pour gravy on a plate without permission. It spoils the meat for some persons. 2. Never put anything by force upon anyone's plate. It is extremely ill-bred, though extremely common to press one to eat of anything three if at dinner you are requested to help anyone to sauce or gravy do not pour it over the meat or vegetables but on one side of them never load down a person's plate with anything Four, as soon as you are helped begin to eat or at least begin to occupy yourself with what you have before you do not wait till your neighbors are served a custom that was long ago abandoned five should you however Find yourself at a table where they have the old-fashioned steel forks. Eat with your knife, as the others do, and do not let it be seen that you have any objection to doing so. 6. Bread should be broken. To butter a large piece of bread and then bite it, as children do, is something the knowing never do. 7. In eating game or poultry do not touch the bones with your fingers. To take a bone in the fingers for the purpose of picking it, is looked upon as being very inelegant. 8. Never use your own knife or fork to help another. Use rather the knife or fork of the person you help. 9. Never send your knife or fork, or either of them, on your plate when you send for second supply. 10. Never turn your elbows out when you use your knife and fork. Keep them close to your sides. 11. Whenever you use your fingers to convey anything to your mouth or to remove anything from the mouth, let it be the fingers of the left hand. 12. Tea, Coffee. Chocolate and the like are drank from the cup and never from the saucer. Thirteen. In masticating your food, keep your mouth shut, otherwise you will make a noise that will be very offensive to those around you. 14. Don't attempt to talk with a full mouth. One thing at a time is as much as any man can do well. 15. Should you find a word or more insect in your food, say nothing about it. 16. If a dish is distasteful to you, decline it, and without comment. 17. Never put bones or bits of fruit on the tablecloth. Put them on the side of your plate. 18. Do not hesitate to take the last piece on the dish, simply because it is the last. To do so is to directly express the fear that you would exhaust the supply. 19. If you would be what you would like to be abroad, take care that you are what you would like to be at home. 20. Avoid picking your teeth at the table if possible, but if you must, do it. If you can where you are not observed. 21. If an accident of any kind ever should occur during dinner, the cause being who or what it may, you should not seem to note it. 22. Should you be so unfortunate as to overturn or to break anything, you should make no apology. You might let your regret appear in your face, but it would not be proper to put it in words. Social duties. Man in society is like a flower, blown in its native bed tis there alone his faculties expanded in full bloom shine out, there only reach their proper use, Cooper, the primal duties shine aloft like stars, the charities that soothe, and heal, and bless, are scattered at the feet of man like flowers, Wordsworth, 1. Membership in Society, many fail to get hold of the idea that they are members of society, they seem to suppose that the social machinery of the world is self-operating, They cast their first ballot with an emotion of pride perhaps, but are sure to pay their first tax with a groan. They see political organizations in active existence, the parish, and the church, and other important bodies that embrace in some form of society all men, are successfully operated, and yet these young men have no part or lot in the matter. They do not think of giving a day's time to society, to begin early. One of the first things a young man should do is to see that he is acting his part in society. The earlier this is begun the better. I think that the opponents of secret societies in colleges have failed to estimate the benefit which it must be to every member to be obliged to contribute to the support of his particular organization, and to assume personal care and responsibility as a member. If these societies have a tendency to teach the lessons of which I speak, they are a blessed thing. 3. Do your part. Do your part and be a man among men, assume your portion of social responsibility, and see that you discharge it well, if you do not do this, then you are mean, and society has the right to despise you just as much as it chooses to do so, you are, to use a word more emphatic than agreeable, a sneak, and have not a claim upon your neighbors for a single polite word, for, a whining complainer, society, as it is called, is far more apt to pay its dues to the individual than the individual to society. Have you, young man, who are at home whining over the fact that you cannot get into society, done anything to give you a claim to social recognition? Are you able to make any return for social recognition and social privileges? Do you know anything? What kind of coin do you propose to pay in the discharge of the obligation which comes upon you with social recognition? In other words, as a return for what you wish to have society do for you. What can you do for society? This is a very important question more important to you than to society. The question island whether you will be a member of society by right, or by courtesy. If you have so mean a spirit as to be content to be a beneficiary of society to receive favors and to confer none you have no business in the society to which you aspire. You are an exacting, conceited fellow. 5. What are you good for? Are you a good beau, and are you willing to make yourself useful in waiting on the ladies on all occasions? Have you a good set of teeth, which you are willing to show whenever the wit of the company gets off a good thing? Are you a true, straightforward, manly fellow, with whose healthful and incorrupted nature it is good for society to come in contact? In short, do you possess anything of any social value? If you do, and are willing to impart it, society will yield itself to your touch. If you have nothing, then society, as such, owes you nothing. Christian philanthropy may put its arm around you, as a lonely young man, about to spoil for want of something, but it is very sad and humiliating for a young man to be brought to that. There are people who devote themselves to nursing young men, and doing them good. If they invite you to tea, go by all means, and try your hand, if in the course of the evening, you can prove to them that your society is desirable. You have won a point. Don't be patronized. 6. The morbid condition. Young men, you are apt to get into a morbid state of mind, which declines them to social intercourse. They become devoted to business with such exclusiveness, that all social intercourse is irksome. They go out to tea as if they were going to jail, and drag themselves to a party as to an execution. This disposition is thoroughly morbid, and to be overcome by going where you are invited, always and with a sacrifice of feeling. 7. The Common Blunder Don't shrink from contact with anything but bad morals. Men who affect your unhealthy minds with antipathy, will prove themselves very frequently to be your best friends and most delightful companions. Because a man seems uncongenial to you, who are squeamish and foolish, you have no right to shun him. We become charitable by knowing men. We learn to love those whom we have despised by rubbing against them. Do you not remember some instance of meeting a man or woman whom you had never previously known or cared to know an individual, perhaps, against whom you have entertained the strongest prejudices but to whom you became bound by a lifelong friendship through the influence of a three days intercourse? Yet, if you had not thus met, you would have carried through life the idea that it would be impossible for you to give your fellowship to such an individual. 8. The Foolishness of Man. God has introduced into human character infinite variety, and for you to say that you do not love and will not associate with a man because he isn't like you, is not only foolish but wrong. You are to remember that in the precise manner and degree in which a man differs from you, do you differ from him, and that from his standpoint you are naturally as repulsive to him, as he, from your standpoint, is to you. So, Leave all this talk of congeniality to silly girls and transcendental dreamers. 9. Do business in your way and be honest. Do your business in your own way. And concede to every man the privilege which you claim for yourself. The more you mix with men, the less you will be disposed to quarrel. And the more charitable and liberal will you become. The fact that you do not understand a man, is quite as likely to be your fault as his. There are a good many chances in favor of the conclusion that, If you fail to like an individual whose acquaintance you make it is through your own ignorance and illiberality. So I say, meet every man honestly, seek to know him, and you will find that in those points in which he differs from you rests his power to instruct you, enlarge you, and do you good. Keep your heart open for everybody, and be sure that you shall have your reward. You shall find a jewel under the most uncouth exterior, and associated with homeliest manners and honest ways and ugliest faces you will find rare virtues, fragrant little humanities, and inspiring heroisms. 10. Without society, without influence, again, you can have no influence unless you are social. An unsocial man is as devoid of influence as an I speak is of verdure. It is through social contact and absolute social value alone that you can accomplish any great social good. It is through the invisible lines which you are able to attach to the minds with which you are brought into association alone that you can tow society, with its deeply freighted interests, to the great haven of your hope. 11. The Revenge of Society. The revenge which society takes upon the man who isolates himself, is as terrible as it is inevitable. The pride which sits alone will have the privilege of sitting alone in its sublime disgust till it drops into the grave. The world sweeps by the man, carelessly remorselessly, contemptuously. He has no hold upon society, because he is no part of it. 12. The conclusion of the whole matter. You cannot move men until you are one of them. They will not follow you until they have heard your voice, shaken your hand, and fully learned your principles and your sympathies. It makes no difference how much you know, or how much you are capable of doing. You may pile accomplishment upon acquisition mountain high, but if you fail to be a social man demonstrating to society that your lot is with the rest, a little child with a song in its mouth, and a kiss for all and a pair of innocent hands to lay upon the knees, shall lead more hearts and change the direction of more lives than you. Politeness 1. Beautiful Behavior Politeness has been described as the art of showing, my external signs, the internal regard we have for others, but one may be perfectly polite to another without necessarily paying a special regard for him good manners are neither more nor less than beautiful behavior. It has been well said that, a beautiful form is better than a beautiful face. And a beautiful behavior is better than a beautiful form, it gives a higher pleasure than statues or pictures it is the finest of the fine arts. 2. True politeness. The truest politeness comes of sincerity. It must be the outcome of the heart, or it will make no lasting impression, for no amount of polish can dispense with truthfulness. The natural character must be allowed to appear, freed of its angularities and asperities, though politeness, in its best form, should resemble water, best when clearest, most simple, and without taste, yet genius in a man will always cover many defects of manner, and much will be excused to the strong and the original, without genuineness and individuality, human life would lose much of its interest and variety, as well as its manliness and robustness of character. 3 personality of others. True politeness especially exhibits itself in regard for the personality of others. A man will respect the individuality of another if he wishes to be respected himself. He will have due regard for his views and opinions, even though they differ from his own. The well-mannered man pays a compliment to another, and sometimes even secures his respect by patiently listening to him. He is simply tolerant and forbearant, and refrains from judging harshly, and harsh judgments of others will almost invariably provoke harsh judgments of ourselves. For, the impolite, the impolite, impulsive man will, however, sometimes rather lose his friend than his joke. He may surely be pronounced a very foolish person who secures another's hatred at the price of a moment's gratification. It was a saying of Bernal, the engineer himself one of the kindest natured of men that, spite and ill-nature are among the most expensive luxuries in life. Dr. Johnson once said, Sir a man has no more right to say a rude thing to another than to knock him down. 5. Feelings of others. Want of respect for the feelings of others usually originates in selfishness, and issues in hardness and repulsiveness of manner. It may not proceed from malignity so much, as from want of sympathy, and want of delicacy a want of that perception of, and attention to, those little and apparently trifling things. By which pleasure is given or pain occasioned to others. Indeed, it may be said that in self-sacrifice in the ordinary intercourse of life, mainly consists the difference between being well and ill-bred. Without some degree of self-restraint in society a man may be found almost insufferable. No one has pleasure in holding intercourse with such a person, and he is a constant source of annoyance to those about him. 6. Disregard of others. Men may show their disregard to others in various impolite ways as, for instance, by neglect of propriety in dress, by the absence of cleanliness, or by indulging in repulsive habits, this slovenly, dirty person, by rendering himself physically disagreeable, sets the tastes and feelings of others at defiance, and is rude and incivil, only under another form. 7. The best school of politeness, the first and best school of politeness, as of character, is always the home, where woman is the teacher, The manners of society at large are but the reflex of the manners of our collective homes, neither better nor worse. Yet, with all the disadvantages of ingenial homes, men may practice self culture of manner as of intellect, and learn by good examples to cultivate a graceful and agreeable behavior towards others. Most men are like so many gems in the rough, which need polishing by contact with other and better natures, to bring out their full beauty and luster. Some have but one side polished sufficient only to show the delicate graining of the interior, but to bring out the full qualities of the gem, needs the discipline of experience, and contact with the best examples of character in the intercourse of daily life. 8. Captiousness of manner, while captiousness of manner, and the habit of disputing and contradicting everything said, is chilling and repulsive, the opposite habit of ascending to, and sympathizing with, every statement made, or emotion expressed, is almost equally disagreeable, it is unmanly, and is felt to be dishonest, it may seem difficult, says Richard Sharp, to steer always between bluntness and plain dealing, between merited praises and lavishing indiscriminate flattery, but it is very easy good humor, kind heartedness, and perfect simplicity, being all that are requisite to do what is right in the right way, at the same time many are impolite, not because they mean to be so, but because they are awkward, and perhaps no no better. 9. Shy people. Again many persons are thought to be stiff, reserved, and proud, when they are only shy. Shyness is characteristic of most people of the Teutonic race. From all that can be learned of Shakespeare, it is to be inferred that he was an exceedingly shy man, the manner in which his plays were sent into the world for it is not known that he edited or authorized the publication of a single one of them, and the dates at which they respectively appeared. Are mere matters of conjecture. 10. Self-forgetfulness. True politeness is best evinced by self-forgetfulness, or self-denial in the interest of others. Mr. Garfield, our martyred president, was a gentleman of royal type. His friend, Carl Rockwell, says of him, in the midst of his suffering he never forgets others. For instance, today he said to me, Rockwell, there is a poor soldier's widow who came to me before this thing occurred and I promised her, she should be provided for, I want you to see that the matter is attended to at once, he is the most docile patient I ever saw, 11, its bright side, we have thus far spoken of shyness as a defect, but there is another way of looking at it, for even shyness has its bright side, and contains an element of good, shy men and shy races are ungraceful and indemonstrative, because, as regards society at large, they are comparatively unsociable, They do not possess those elegancies of manner acquired by free intercourse, which distinguish the social races, because their tendency is to shun society rather than to seek it. They are shy in the presence of strangers, and shy even in their own families. They hide their affections under a robe of reserve, and when they do give way to their feelings, it is only in some very hidden inner chamber. And yet, the feelings are there, and not the less healthy and genuine. Though they are not made the subject of exhibition to others. 12. Wordy of cultivation, while, therefore, grace of manner, politeness of behavior, elegance of demeanor, and all the arts that contribute to make life pleasant and beautiful, are worthy of cultivation. It must not be at the expense of the more solid and enduring qualities of honesty, sincerity, and truthfulness. The fountain of beauty must be in the heart more than in the eye and if it does not tend to produce beautiful life and noble practice, it will prove of comparatively little avail. Politeness of manner is not worth much, unless it is accompanied by polite actions, influence of good character, unless above himself he can erect himself. How poor a thing is man! Daniel. Character is moral order seen through the medium of an individual nature. Men of character are the conscience of the society to which they belong. Emerson. The purest treasure mortal times afford. Is spotless reputation, that away. Men are but gilded loam, or painted clay. A jewel in a ten times barred up chest is a bold spirit in a loyal breast. Shakespeare. One. Reputation. The two most precious things this side the grave are our reputation and our life. But it is to be lamented that the most contemptible whisper may deprive us of the one, and the weakest weapon of the other. A wise man, therefore, will be more anxious to deserve a fair name than to possess it and this will teach him so to live as not to be afraid to die. 2. Character. Character is one of the greatest motive powers in the world, in its noblest embodiments. It exemplifies human nature in its highest forms, for it exhibits man at his best. 3. The heart that rules in life. Although genius always commands admiration, character most secures respect. The former is more the product of brain power the latter of heart power, and in the long run it is the heart that rules in life. Men of genius stand to society in the relation of its intellect as men of character of its conscience, and while the former are admired, the latter are followed. For The highest ideal of life and character. Commonplace though it may appear, this doing of one's duty embodies the highest ideal of life and character. There may be nothing heroic about it, but the common lot of men is not heroic. And though the abiding sense of duty upholds man in his highest attitudes, it also equally sustains him in the transaction of the ordinary affairs of everyday existence. Man's life is centered in the sphere of common duties. The most influential of all the virtues are those which are the most in request for daily use. They wear the best, and last the longest. 5. Wealth. Wealth in the hands of men of weak purpose, or deficient self-control. Of ill regulated passions is only a temptation and a snare, the source, it may be, of infinite mischief to themselves, and often to others. On the contrary, a condition of comparative poverty is compatible with character in its highest form. A man may possess only his industry, his frugality, his integrity, and yet stand high in the rank of true manhood. The advice which Burns' father gave him was the best, he bade me act a manly part, though I had ne'er a farthing, for without an honest, Manly heart no man was worth regarding. 6. Character is property. It is the noblest of possessions. It is an estate in the general good will and respect of men. They who invest in it though they may not become rich in this world's goods will find their reward in esteem and reputation fairly and honorably won. And it is right that in life good qualities should tell that industry, virtue, and goodness should rank the highest and that the really best men should be foremost. 7. Simple honesty of purpose. This in a man goes a long way in life. If founded on a just estimate of himself and a steady obedience to the rule he knows and feels to be right, it holds a man straight, gives him strength and sustenance, and forms a mainspring of vigorous action. No man is bound to be rich or great member, nor to be wise but every man is bound to be honest and virtuous. Family Government 1. Gentleness must characterize every act of authority. The storm of excitement that may make the child start. There is no relation to actual obedience. The inner firmness, that sees and feels a moral conviction and expects obedience, is only disguised and defeated by bluster. The more calm and directed i the greater certainty it has of dominion. 2. For the government of small children. For the government of small children speak only in the authority of love, yet authority, loving and to be obeyed. The most important lesson to impart is obedience to authority as authority. The question of salvation with most children will be settled as soon as they learn to obey parental authority. It establishes a habit and order of mind that is ready to accept divine authority. This precludes skepticism and disobedience, and induces that childlike trust and spirit set forth as a necessary state of salvation. Children that are never made to obey are left to drift into the sea of passion where the pressure for surrender only tends to drive them at greater speed from the haven of safety. 3. Habits of Self-Denial Form in the child habits of self-denial. Pampering never matures good character. 4. Emphasize integrity. Keep the moral tissues tough in integrity, then it will hold a hook of obligations when once set in a sure place. There is nothing more vital. Shape all your experiments to preserve the integrity. Do not so reward it that it becomes mercenary. Turning states evidence is a dangerous experiment in morals. Prevent deceit from succeeding. 5. Guard modesty. To be brazen is to imperil some of the best elements of character. Modesty may be strengthened into a becoming confidence, but brazen-facedness can seldom be toned down into decency. It requires the miracle of grace. 6. Protect purity. Teach your children to loathe impurity. Study the character of their playmates. Watch their books. Keep them from corruption at all cost. The groups of youth in the school and in society, and in business places, Seed with improprieties of word and thought. Never relax your vigilance along this exposed border. 7. Threaten the least possible. In family government threaten the least possible. Some parents rattle off their commands with penalties so profusely that there is a steady roar of hostilities about the child's head. These threats are forgotten by the parent and inheeded by the child. All government is at an end. 8. Do not enforce too many commands. Leave a few things within the range of the child's knowledge that are not forbidden. Keep your word good, but do not have too much of it out to be redeemed. 9. Punish as little as possible. Sometimes punishment is necessary, but the less it is resorted to the better. 10. Never punish in a passion. Wrath only becomes cruelty. There is no moral power in it. When you seem to be angry you can do no good. 11. Brutish violence only multiplies offenders. Striking and beating the body seldom reaches the soul. Fear and hatred beget rebellion. 12. Punish privately. Avoid punishments that break down self-respect. Striking the body produces shame and indignation. It is enough for the other children to know that discipline is being administered. 13. Never stop short of success. When the child is not conquered the punishment has been worse than wasted. Reach the point where neither wrath nor sullenness remain. My firm persistence and persuasion require an open look of recognition and peace. It is only evil to stir up the devil unless he is cast out. Ordinarily one complete victory will last a child for a lifetime. But if the child relapses, repeat the dose with proper accompaniments. 14. Do not require children to complain of themselves for pardon. It begets either sycophants or liars. It is the part of the government to detect offenses. It reverses the order of matters to short this duty. 15. Great authority up to liberty. The growing child must have experiments of freedom. Lead him gently into the family. Counsel with him. Let him plan as he can. By and by he has the confidence of courage without the danger of exposures. 16. Respect. Parents must respect each other. Undermining either undermines both. Always govern in the spirit of love. Conversation. Some men are very entertaining for a first interview. But after that they are exhausted and run out, on a second meeting we shall find them very flat and monotonous, like hand organs, we have heard all their tunes, c-o-u-l-t-o-n, he who sedulously attends, pointedly asks, calmly speaks, coolly answers, and ceases when he has no more to say, is in possession of some of the best requisites of man, a lady a dear. beauty is never so lovely as when adorned with a smile, and conversation never sits easier upon us than when we know and then discharge ourselves in a symphony of laughter, which may not improperly be called the chorus of conversation. Still, The first ingredient in conversation is truth. The next good sense. The third good humor. And the fourth wit. Sir William Temple. Home lessons in conversation. Say nothing unpleasant when it can be avoided. Avoid satire and sarcasm. Never repeat a word that was not intended for repetition. Cultivate the supreme wisdom, which consists less in saying what ought to be said than